everybody, this is Howie Hawkins. I was the Green Party candidate for president in 2020. And this Green Socialist live stream is about continuing the eco-socialist politics that Angela Walker and I ran on. So I'm going to say a few words about what's going on and then we'll have questions and answers. Um, first, I'll start off with three pieces of good news uh, this week. New York City... The city council voted to give voting rights to immigrants for local elections. And that's important because, you know, they pay taxes, their kids go to the schools. I mean, it, they in a democracy, people should be able to participate in the decisions that affect their lives. And actually, that was not a problem in this country for immigrants to you know, get involved in elections until the 20th century. So this is really uh, going back to a, a better policy. A second piece of good news, news is that Stephen Donziger, who's the environmental lawyer that Chevron has uh, captured the courts and prosecuted, uh, he won a $9.5 billion judgment against Chevron for polluting uh, the Ecuadorian Amazon, and they have gone after him ever since. Got that ruling, it was, you know, made in Ecuador. U.S. courts have uh, told Chevron they don't have to pay. And then they went after Donziger and uh, accused him of fraud and other things in the case. And uh, then he was uh, prosecuted by it because the Southern District of New York would not prosecute him. Uh, the judge uh, had a private prosecutor go after him who's linked to Chevron. It's, it's a terrible case. If you haven't read about it, look it up. But anyway, he was uh, convicted of contempt of court because he wouldn't give him his electronic devices, which he still needs. There's attorney client privilege information on there as he appeals his cases. And uh, so they made, they uh, convicted him of being in contempt of court, six months in prison. But he got released this week because of a law in New York that uh, uh, gives uh, prisoners the opportunity to get out because of COVID and where he was staying, COVID was spreading. So he's back at home arrest, now going on three years. Uh, but he's in a better position to uh, fight for his case. So that happened uh, Thursday, I believe, and so that's good news. And then uh, Shama Sawant looks like she has survived an assault by a big business in Seattle, the real estate interests, the landlord developers, to recall her from her position on city council. And both sides spent nearly a million dollars and in a race where I think it was about 20,000 votes on each side. She's leading now that they've counted all the paper ballots by about 250 votes. Uh, so it looks like she survived and that's good news. They're still uh, dealing with, I think around 500 ballots that may be able to be cured. Uh, but the demographics of those ballots are in her favor. So it looks like she survived and it's just encouraging that this uh, massive assault by the business class it doesn't want to be taxed. You know, she leads this tax Amazon campaign, fought for the $15 minimum wage and other things that they don't like. Uh, they pulled out all their guns to get her and they missed. So uh, this is the fourth time she's been able to beat the business interests. And so that's something for us to celebrate. Uh, but there was bad news this week. Um, I believe it was yesterday. Yeah, yesterday the uh, British High Court ruled that uh, Julian Assange can be extradited to the U.S. 
Now, Assange can still make a couple of appeals, uh, but <clears throat> this was really a ruling on a lower court decision that it wouldn't be safe to bring Assange to the United States because our prison system is so brutal and he was at risk for suicide. The U.S. government made assurances to the high court in Britain and they accepted those assurances. The underlying issues were not ruled in Assange's favor uh, when they didn't want to extradite him because of that uh, dangerous to his health. And that's where he's being charged with, I think, 17 violations of the Espionage Act, uh, which is a World War I relic, very repressive piece of legislation. Uh, and they've been using it against whistleblowers since Obama's time. It was hardly used from World War I when they went after people like Eugene Debs and uh, <clears throat> A. Philip Randolph and Emma Goldman. Um, and then it was used sparingly, very sparingly, until Obama. And now it's been a law they go after whistleblowers, which when you provide government information to the public, it doesn't mean you're espionage for a foreign agent. But that's what they've charged Assange with. And uh, if he's convicted, it will mean all the investigative journalists for mainstream news outlets like the New York Times and Washington Post and Wall Street Journal would be in jeopardy if they use information, publish information they get uh, from leaked documents, which is what the news is every day. Most of what we learn about our government is from leaks. So this is a very important case, and it's bad news. I mean, Assange has already been basically locked up for nine years uh, since he had to go into the Ecuadorian embassy to avoid charges of rape and sexual molestation out of Sweden, which has since been dropped. Um, and, and then uh, the UK got him for jumping bail when he was in the Ecuadorian embassy. And uh, now the US is after him. So he's already spent nearly a decade in prison and it's going to be years the way this thing is playing out. And he may be back here in the US uh, dealing with this court case. So we need to keep our defense of Julian Assange because it's about not just his freedom as a journalist, but freedom of the press that all of us can use. And then, you know, the other bad news is ongoing bad news, this democracy crisis. And it's just uh, inexplicable that the Democrats aren't really talking about it. They don't have any public campaign to get the... Uh, it's now called the Freedom to Vote Act, the shorter version of the watered-down version of the For the People Act, or the John Lewis Voting Rights Enhancement Act. Um, meanwhile, the Republicans are out in the states uh, gerrymandering districts so they can rule from a minority position, setting up uh, rules so they can um, basically flip elections, steal elections. Uh, so this legislation would provide voting rights and election protection and doesn't look like it's going anywhere. Uh, they do. They keep talking about Build Back Better, but President Manchin is saying, uh, let's wait till next year because of inflation, uh, which, you know, the filibuster is a democracy crisis in itself. It gives the minority a veto over what the majority wants. And what's sort of inexplicable and just uh, infuriating is that Biden is still talking bipartisanship with a party that tried to overthrow his election. Um you know, the, the, the Democrats are bringing cupcakes to a knife fight. And, you know, I guess that's why we need the Green Party, because we're ready to fight the fascists, not try to go bipartisan with them, and push beyond just uh, voting rights and election protection 
for fair ballot access, uh, ranked choice voting for executive officers, including president, so that the spoiler effect is not in play uh, and people can vote for the Greens who they prefer rather than the Democrats as a lesser evil to stop Republicans, and for proportional representation against the exclusionary single-member district winner-take-all system of elections in this country, which makes it very difficult for the Greens or anybody with an alternative point of view to get into the government in proportion to the support they have among the voters. And that to me is the game changer. And that's what we got to fight for. The Democrats aren't doing it. The Greens have got to take the lead on this fight for democracy. So, you know, the bad news is the Democrats are in a position to do something about it or not doing anything. So that's uh, the good news and the bad news. Adam Kasuki. Why are some local and state green parties anti-vaccine and anti-mask? Greater Milwaukee Green Party, for example. I think you're overstating. I think there is an anti-vaccine, anti-mask minority. Um, I don't know. when I, The people I know in Milwaukee are pro-mask, pro-vaccine. Um, I know there's some people in the Wisconsin party that are anti-vaxxers, but... Uh, but you're asking why. And honestly, I think there are a lot of suckers on the progressive side who are being manipulated by a very well-funded campaign by far-right funders from the Koch brothers, uh, right-wing rich people in Australia, to this Chinese billionaire who uh, is an expatriate who is funding a lot of this anti-vaccine misinformation and disinformation while he's also the sugar daddy for Steve Bannon. And I think the objective of the right is to use libertarian arguments uh, to get illiberal results. So their business interests aren't regulated and they don't have to answer to any kind of democracy. And what's unfortunate is I think they're conspiracy-minded people who consider themselves progressives who fall for this. They can't tell the difference between you know, Big Pharma did manufacture or develop the vaccines with a lot of public money, but the safety of the vaccines is coming from scientific studies, reports from the field that are amassed in statistical studies and show the vaccine is effective in reducing harm from the uh, virus. And uh, then you end up with people saying, well, and there was a headline briefly back last spring where it said, uh, the vaccinated could spread the virus as much as the unvaccinated came from somebody in the uh, CDC. And that was very quickly uh, changed. But I've seen, for example, Jimmy Dore put a headline up from CNN when the report first came out. And I looked that up and I found out that CNN changed the headline very quickly, but he published six months later, a headline that was six months old and wrong. So I think a lot of people are falling for this propaganda. And so that's why I think there are anti-vaxxers and anti-mask people. And, you know, the idea that uh, public health measures, public safety measures, you know, that, that you need to be vaccinated to be in a public place where you could spread the virus is like, you know, we drive on the right side of the road and we agree to do that so we don't have head-on collisions. Uh, that's not a big uh, impingement on 
your personal liberty. Uh, what is a danger is this anti-democracy movement we're getting from the far right, the Republican Party. And if people are concerned about their you know, civil liberties and democratic rights, that's what they should be fighting. Uh, you know, vaccine mandates, you know, that, you know, requiring people that work in hospitals and schools uh, with coworkers or in public places like restaurants, uh, requiring them to be vaccinated is, you know, public health common sense. And, uh, you know, people are saying this is, you know, the next, you know, Nazi regime. I think that's just crazy. And it's ironic that the Nazis are putting that out there. So I think that's why a lot of people who have a conspiracy-minded mentality or approach to things rather than, you know, a power structure or a class analysis of our society um, and are able to, you know, dis make the distinction between, you know, big pharma and the science that says those vaccines are pretty effective. So I think that's why we, we've got this anti-vax, but it's a minority, I, I'm pretty sure, in the Green Party. And I know of no local or state Green Parties that have taken a formal position against vaccines. Um, and if the Milwaukee, Greater Milwaukee Green Party did, I'd be surprised. Scout Trooper 164, what do you think of Chris Cuomo suing CNN for firing him? Uh, I think Chris Cuomo is almost as bad as his brother, Andrew, who I ran against three times. Um, I haven't looked into the details of the lawsuit, uh, but, you know, when he's a journalist and they're doing uh, background information and actually trying to dig up dirt on the accusers of Andrew Cuomo of uh, sexual assault is, um, you know, beyond the pale. So good riddance, Chris Cuomo. David Schwab, correction, speaking as co-chair of the Wisconsin Green Party, the Greater Milwaukee Green Party is neither anti-vaccine nor anti-mask. There may be a minority with those views, but not the party. Thank you, David. That was my suspicion, knowing a number of members of the Milwaukee Party. And uh, thank you for letting us know, you know what the real deal is. Amy L. Sachs. Speaking of social media, I emailed the National Green Party to express support for the recent COVID statement. If you support it, consider doing the same. It's a bit tricky, but you can go through Green Party main page. Uh, yeah, I think oh, a lot of the purported Twitter leftists had a rage fit about the statement, yelling about Nazism and so on. Ugly even for Twitter. Yeah, I've seen some of that because... Uh, the uh, COVID program that Angela and I put out during the campaign was linked in the news release that everybody's upset, not everybody, a minority of uh, anti-vaxxers are upset about. And they are very vocal. And I think uh, most people in the Green Party, uh, you know, who support vaccinations and public health measures, uh, they just go about their business. So, uh, you know, speaking up now would be a good, it'd be a good time to do so. In, in favor of that statement, um, which was, you know, basically saying, you know, we support uh, vaccinations and uh, COVID uh, vaccine mandates where appropriate.
David Schwab, what are your thoughts on the recent Teamsters Union election? Well, the uh, reform slate won, and I'm happy about that. Uh, one of the the second uh, person in the slate, uh, Zuckerman out of, uh, I think it's Lexington, Kentucky. Anyway, he headed up the reform slate four years ago, and we came very close to getting the Hoffa regime out. This time, the reform slate beat the slate that uh, Hoffa was retiring, Jimmy Hoffa Jr., but his people lost. And uh, I think that's good. I think uh, the teachers will be a little bit more open. They have to be accountable to this reform movement. Um, they're going to be more militant, I think, in terms of particularly dealing with UPS and a new contract next year. Uh, UPS Teamsters were coasting on the very good contract they got as a result of the 1997 strike. And, uh, you know, I was in the Teamsters since then, and uh, we never threatened the strike. And we accepted a lot of concessions, the worst being the last contract, where it set up a two-tier system for package drivers. So the new people hired had to work in the warehouse and then go out and deliver packages uh, and either later in the same shift or in separate shifts and at a lower rate of pay than the uh, existing drivers. And that, of course, is a company strategy to divide the workers against each other because the, the new workers resent the higher workers uh, or the older workers higher pay and it just creates problems within the union. So a big issue is getting that two-tier uh, system removed. And so that's coming up next year. And I think the leadership we got now uh, will consider the strike option. And a strike by UPS workers is powerful because it's a, a major component of uh, logistics and shipping in this country. So that's why that strike in 1997 only took two weeks for the company to say uncle. And I think, you know, we're in a similar position now. It's, it's strategic. As a retired Teamster, I couldn't vote. I did do a little campaigning on behalf of the reform slate. Uh, my local, my, my shop or, or, or barn, as we call it in the Teamsters, um, voted overwhelmingly for the reform slate. So I didn't really need to do that much campaigning. So I think uh, the Teamsters are in a better place. And... Uh, but there's still issues. I mean, the teachers as a whole are not good on the climate question. They tend to support fossil fuel infrastructure pipelines and things like that. The leadership has. That was not an issue in the campaign, but I don't know if the leadership is ready to, you know, uh, come out against these fossil fuel infrastructure projects like some of the service unions are. Um, and being a retired teamster, I don't have a vote anymore. So I can just, you know, state my views. I can tell you that rank and file, and I found this among construction worker unions, and I used to be a construction worker as well. You know, the grassroots rank and file workers are much more uh, concerned about climate change and open to renewable energy uh, jobs than the leadership tends to be, who tends to be conservative, and they just want to, you know, keep the jobs they got rather than take the risk of having to organize new sectors, you know, in like the renewable energy sector. So that's an issue going forward. Um, and there's one piece of news that's good news. This probably came out the week before last. Uh, a Some kind of business consulting firm did a survey of workers in the fossil fuel industry asking them if they uh, wanted to take jobs in the renewable sector. And a majority said they would like to take jobs, get out of fossil fuels and into renewables. So that's good. I mean, that just reinforces what I'm saying is the rank and file workers are often ahead of the 
labor bureaucrats on a lot of these issues. Howie, what are your thoughts on Afghan starving due to Biden's sanctions? Yeah, I mean, the, the sanctions should be lifted. We should be aiming to provide uh, humanitarian aid, uh, food relief, and, you know, just the conditions are, you know, our aid workers are able to get it to the people that need it. And the Taliban is in a position where they need that desperately because uh, if people are starving and they're not delivering any kind of services, uh, the people can be upset with them and they will have a hard time maintaining power. So, uh, you know, just to impose the sanctions because you're mad that uh, the Taliban basically beat our military. Um, and there are good reasons for that. You know, we were no better when it came to civilian deaths and uh, not understanding the local situation than the terrorists who did suicide bombings and so forth were. So, um, you know, that war was more fought to keep the money flow going to military contractors than with any uh, real program of, you know, building up civil society, not just in the cities, but in the rural areas so that people could govern themselves. And so you get reports like Anand Gopal, who is a uh, courageous journalist. He, he went back just as this was happening in the summer and uh, went back into Taliban areas. He did that over a decade ago and wrote a book whose title I'm forgetting, but, you know, basically showed the U.S. was clueless and was being played by, uh, you know, these local warlords and Taliban groups uh, because, you know, they were using U.S. aid and uh, statements about who was on which side uh, to get back. It was about local disputes and the U.S. was being played. So Anand went back and found out that, you know, people that don't like the Taliban in these rural areas, they're generally conservative Muslim people, but they don't like the Taliban, but they're glad the U.S. is out of there because of, you know, drone strikes and other uh, aerial bombing and then these uh, special operations, uh, you know, uh, missions that went right into people's homes and snatched and killed uh, people they thought to be terrorists. We just alienated the whole rural sector of Afghanistan. So, uh, you know, the U.S. owes Afghanistan for all the destruction. It's not just 20 years. It goes back to when Brzezinski convinced Carter that we should start supporting the Islamic fundamentalists against the Afghan regime, which was nominally communist and secular and probably pushing too hard in the rural areas for you know modernization, which got the fundamentalists riled up and the U.S. started through the CIA supporting them. This is even before the Soviets intervened to try to prop up that government. And so we, that you know, and we continued supporting these Islamic uh, groups that then later in the 20-year war, the, the forever war, we were fighting. Although in actuality, we were supporting some to fight against others. Uh, it was not a situation where our military could have a positive impact. So those are some of my thoughts. And, you know, the basic thing is, yeah, the sanctions should be lifted. We should be providing aid and making friends instead of enemies by being the world's humanitarian superpower instead of its military global empire. And that should be a policy pretty much everywhere around the globe. Julie Barmer, what do you think about Biden's ratings being so low? 
Seems like his ratings keep getting lower and lower. Yeah, they do. Um, I saw that he joked on Jimmy Kimmel. Maybe it was last night that uh, Kimmel asked him, "Is he? What does he think about his ratings?" And Biden said, "I stopped looking at him. They used to be in the '60s, but now that they're in the '40s, I stopped looking at him." Which, you know, I think humorous, good joke. But um, I think the reason Biden is not connecting is he's not out there with a clear message to people that are having economic troubles and with inflation and uh, inflation in particular, people are not so sure about the economy. COVID is still an issue. Uh, the Afghan uh, fiasco, you know, the messy withdrawal is another problem. So he's got, you know, real issues and it's always hard to keep your ratings up once you become responsible for governing. Um, but the other thing is, I mean, who's he? Who's his competition? The Republicans really don't appeal positively to people for their programs. I mean, what they're doing, and they've mobilized a strong minority, they're scapegoating immigrants, racial minorities, women, quote-unquote uppity women, uh, for problems that are really rooted in, you know, corporations and the very rich getting richer and richer and at the expense of the rest of us. And Biden, you know, that is what he should be talking about. Instead, he's talking about how he can see, I can do bipartisanship. He gets an infrastructure bill passed that, for example, is terrible on climate. Um, he, he appoints uh, Jerome Powell, Trump's appointee for the Fed, to continue as the Fed chair and said, see, that's bipartisanship. I don't, people, I don't think people care that much about bipartisanship. They want to see real results. And Biden doesn't have a narrative to counter the Republican scapegoating narrative. He's saying we're going to do bipartisanship with those people, which in a way reinforces the Republican narrative. So, you know, the Democrats' messaging is terrible. You know, when you think of the Republicans, you know what they're against. You know, immigrants, they want to build a wall. Minorities, they need to get back down in their place from the viewpoint of the white supremacists. Women, same thing. Um, and that's in, and what, that's the Republican narrative. People get it. It appeals not to the majority, but to a strong minority. And then what's the Democratic narrative? What, are the, what, what do the Democrats want to do? And they are getting defined by others. You know, they're socialists. They are uh, too woke, you know, making you uh, take cultural positions you don't want to take. Stuff like that where they need a narrative that says, you know, we're looking out for the regular people and we're going to deliver results. And Build Back Better has programs in it that could do that, although they've been watered down so much and distorted by privatization and uh, means testing that they're not going to be that effective. But anyway, the, the, the basic answer is the Democrats' narrative is not reaching uh, people in a way that they can say, yeah, that's what the Democrats are for, and I'm for that too. They're just not making that communication. The Republicans are killing them on the messaging. Aaron K. Revelis, I hope I pronounced your name right. Howie, what do you think about the left unity slate in California between the Green Party and the Peace and Freedom Party? Uh, I can't comment in detail about the different candidates. I like the basic concept. I like the fact that 
uh, Green Party and Peace and Freedom are trying to cooperate. Um, I know there's some disputed positions. There's some question within the Green Party about the process, and I'm not close enough to it to take a position on that. But I like the basic approach, um, particularly in a single-member district winner-take-all system. And in California, where you got the top two coming out of the jungle primary, uh, the more the left can get together behind a common slate, the better. And the more likely uh, some of them will get to the general election, past the jungle primary. So uh, in principle, I like it. In the details, I know there's some controversies, and I'm not close enough to them to say much more about them. Scout Trooper 164, Howie, what are your thoughts on Donald Trump's not endorsing candidates who didn't help with his big lie and is taking advantage of a strategy that Dems don't use? Um, I'm trying to think what you're referring to in that last part. Uh, you know, Donald Trump, you can say a lot of things about him negative, and I, I can do that all day, but the fact that he sticks to his guns and works with people that agree with him, gives him power. And the big lie is a big lie. But um, I guess what you're referring to, why don't the Democrats, uh, you know, hold their people to account? And I think the problem there is the Democrats are really more than one party. You got the progressives and you got the corporate Democrats who are the bigger, more powerful faction of the Democratic Party. So it's hard for them to take a position and hold people to it. Although, the DNC and the top leadership has tried to discourage progressives from running primaries, giving them access to party resources and so forth. So the Democrats do it a little bit, but it's not public like Trump, which builds support in the public. It's kind of, you know, behind the scenes in the inside game. Um, but I think that explains why the Democrats can't do like Trump is. The other thing Trump's got for him is the Republican Party has become his cult followers. I mean, they had a convention. They didn't adopt a platform. They said, we'll, we'll, we'll do whatever Donald Trump says. Um, you know, that's pathetic. But uh, it does give Trump power um, because he's got the whole party afraid of him. And uh, it's, a, it's a, you know, it's a threat to all of us, what, what they're doing. Because when, you know, a third of the country thinks the last election was fraudulent, uh, you know, the legitimacy of the government and the idea that we can talk our way, our differences through and have a legislative process where you win some and you lose some. Now it's like we win or we fight. And you got to realize the far right is armed and some of those people want to use them. So we're in a dangerous situation. Bob Rash, Howie, what do you think about the Biden administration's hawkish response to the current escalating tensions and conflict between Russia and Ukraine? Yeah, I think the saber rattling is not what's needed. Um, you know, what Putin asked for basically is that the U.S. and NATO say we're not going to bring Ukraine into the NATO alliance. And even though that will take years of process to do, uh, NATO and the U.S. should say that. I mean, we know, and it's well documented now, that uh, when uh, the U.S. and Russia, uh, George W. Bush, George H. W. Bush, and uh, uh, 
Gorbachev negotiated allowing Germany to reunite, the U.S. promised that NATO would not expand beyond Germany. And then Clinton got in there and pushed it right up into Russia's face. And, you know, from just a geopolitical viewpoint uh, and not saying anything about Russia's politics, you can understand why the Russians are afraid because they're surrounded. And, uh, and then you've got historically Ukraine, the Russian, you know, uh, center of the development of the Russian ethnic group and eventually the Russian empires from Kiev, which is in Ukraine. So there's a lot of entanglements there. And, and for, you know, the U.S. to not respond to, you know, Putin's demands positively, um, or at least say, yeah, let's talk about that. Let's, let's uh, you know, agree on basically spheres of influence. Uh, that is something that uh, Biden, you know, I would have liked to have seen him do that. Um, and there are a number of, uh, you know, foreign policy analysts. Melvin Goodman had a good article on this in Counterpunch last week that I, I tweeted about. Um, so the saber rattling is uh, not helping. Uh, we need to come to terms with Russia so we can deal with issues like climate change, the new nuclear arms race, and the global economy. And instead, we're threatening to basically uh, isolate Russia. We're not going in militarily. Biden made that clear, which, thank God, because we don't want a nuclear war. But the economic sanctions that he's putting out there on the table that Biden is are crippling for Russia and will push them into the uh, economic, banking, and monetary uh, arena of China. Um, so I think, that, you know, the saber rattling is negative. And uh, if we, you know, could come to terms on, and then Ukraine, according to Minsk agreement, would be neutral. And the, uh, the Russian ethnic groups in the West would have some uh, autonomy. It would be more of a federal system in the Ukraine. That was all agreed to, but Ukraine and with NATO and the U.S. backing them, it's not, you know, fulfilled their end of the Minsk agreements. The other side has not been completely adherent to them, but that's what we should get back to. And that was negotiated between uh, Ukraine and Russia. The U.S. wasn't involved. So, you know, we should support that kind of regional agreement. So that's what I think. Thoughts on Bob Dole? <laughs> well, he, he was a Republican when the Republicans were a conservative party, and he was pretty uh, uh, difficult to deal with, very conservative. Uh, wouldn't agree with him on many things, but um, he wasn't crazy like the Republican Party is now. Now, I was wondering when he died, you know, what kind of state of mind he is, because I haven't heard him speak out, for example, against the big lie. He may have been too old and out of it to be able to do that. It would have been, you know, nice if some old Republicans like him would do that. Um, but, you know, he was a very conservative guy and uh, fortunately not a good campaigner or, you know, because he was twice the, uh, I think twice the Democratic or Republican nominee for president. Um, so, you know, that's, that's what I think about Bob Dole. I haven't thought much about him, frankly. Julie Barmart, how do you feel about people that have chosen to get the vaccine or being asked to take numerous boosters? I've noticed now they're saying a certain age child and children are also having to get the booster. 
Well, the booster increases, you know, your antibodies and your immune response. And I think if that's, you know, what the, where we're at with the vaccines, I think that's good. Get the booster. I got mine. Um, and, and in fact, they're talking about we may need to boost, uh, you know, frequently like we do with flu vaccines because uh, the immune response wanes after a while and because the vaccine or the, the virus keeps mutating. But that's nothing new. I mean, we do that with uh, flu vaccinations. Uh, there are other vaccines that have to be boosted after a certain period. So that's not that surprising. As far as uh, children getting the booster, you know, if, uh, you know, the doc, the medical community finds that it's safe and effective, then that's good. And, and we should boost the children. Hey, how, or Eric Gray asks, hey, Howie, what are your thoughts on the Virginia government attacking critical race theory in an attempt to ban discussion of things like socialism, Marxism, and communism? I, I think they're, they don't want to discuss uh, the history of this country that includes the viewpoints of people that uh, were oppressed by the dominant system, black people, indigenous people, Latinos. Um, and that's what that's really about. Um, they call it socialism, Marxism, communism to smear it. But it's really about, you know, the question of our racial history. And that's what they want to really ban the discussion about. Because, you know, the people that want to maintain white supremacist power don't want people having a critical understanding of how racism developed in this country and has continued. And that's what they don't want discussion of. And, of course, they're not teaching critical race theory like it was developed in the law schools in any of our public schools. But what they're really doing is not going after critical race theory. They're going after black history uh, and actually women's history gay history, um, and even talking about those things. And that's, you know, so it's, uh, you know, these right-wingers talk about cancel culture and pose as victims, but here they are, you know, banning discussions. I mean, that's cancel culture if I ever, if, it, if, if there ever was any. Mr. Anderson, is there any actual hope of waving waving vaccine patents. It's been all talk so for too long. Yeah, I agree. I've actually been talking with some Greens about maybe doing a statement on that. Uh, we're kind of waiting to see what the National Party would do. I did talk to one of the authors asking them if they were going to cover that, you know, just to see if I should uh, write something to either give to them or put out, you know, through my campaign. And they did put in a, a word about that. Um, I mean, the situation now is what needs to happen is the World Trade Organization has to lift the intellectual property rights. They call it TRIP. I forget what that acronym stands for. But um, for these vaccines so that they can be uh, produced and distributed at cost uh, in the poor countries of the world, which are grossly undervaccinated um, and just haven't had access to it because keeping the patents on the vaccines makes them too expensive. And uh, so India and South Africa proposed this in October 2020 uh, to an upcoming, uh, well, no, it was after the June 2020 uh, 12th ministerial conference of the WTO 
that was supposed to be in Kazakhstan in June 2020, and it was canceled because of the COVID virus. It took them 18 months to reschedule, and it was scheduled for the first week of December, and it canceled again because of Omicron. So this proposal from South Africa and India uh, couldn't be considered. And the U.S. position is Biden has twice publicly said he's for a patent waiver. He said it in the spring of 2020, 2021, in the spring of 2021, and again, uh, right before this 12 ministerial meeting of the WTO was supposed to happen. But the reporting shows that in the preparatory meetings and the technical meetings of the WTO, the U.S. negotiators are not taking that position. Uh, they are protecting Big Pharma and their patents, as have uh, GA countries like uh, the U.K. And, and Germany. So, yeah, there's hope. We got to push the WTO not to wait 18 months more for, a, for the meeting where they can actually make this change. I mean, they can all get on Zoom and do it soon. Um, and it's really important so that the vaccine can be distributed around the world or the vaccines, I should say. Um, and the hope, I mean, all we can do is speak out and demand. You know, the World Health Organization, many countries are supportive of this. Biden's on a record for it, even if behind the scenes his people are not following through. I mean, I think it's an issue in contention. It's something we got to speak up about. And it has been talked too long. I completely agree with that. I mean, it's just inconceivable. What's the word? You know, inexcusable that two years into this pandemic and we still don't have the, the vaccine patents waived and the vaccine being produced and distributed everywhere in the world. Underhaven, hey, Howie, how do you feel about NFTs? I'm told they're bad for the environment. Okay, NFTs. Somebody asked me about this two weeks ago, and people have sent me information, and I haven't had time to read it up. But, okay, thank you. Non-fungible tokens, which uh, I think means, if I understand correctly, you can buy pieces of uh, investments and things like, you know, rare art that it's an investment and it can increase in value. And I don't know what non-fungible token means exactly. I got to still do the research on this. Um, but so the question is, what do I think about it? I think I need to do some more studying on it so I understand it better. Jason, Sean, Richard Wright. I agree with the point that we need to help the world, those countries which produce the vaccine and I also see the need for mass at-home tests to be distributed across the entire nation immediately. Why, in a Green's opinion, is the current administration not on board with this plan to attack against COVID? Yeah, I saw a little snippet of a news conference where uh, Jim Psaki was asked, you know, why don't we just distribute the at-home mass uh, tests? And she said, basically, well, it'd be expensive. Who's going to pay for it? Um, you know, it's like, how, what are lives worth? I mean, the point is to protect lives. And we spend so much on destroying lives with a bloated military budget that is the, the Congress made $24 billion more than the Pentagon asked for. I mean, 
You want to know where the money is? It's in the military budget. And yes, uh, getting the at-home tests distributed uh, would be a good public health measure. And it's something the federal government is in a position to do. And they, they got the money if they get their priorities straight. Lawrence Seeger, have you heard about the new hemp compound that is eight times stronger than lithium batteries made from hemp waste? World-changing tech. Uh, yes, I've heard about it. I've read articles about it, which I've forwarded to others. And as I understand it, uh, they've had good, uh, you know, experimental and uh, what do you call it? When you do prototypes uh, that, you know, it's it. The, the issue is uh, using that for uh, conducting current within batteries, I believe, rather than with lithium. And, uh, you know, it's definitely something we should pursue because growing hemp, and it's the hemp fibers that, uh, I mean, they can be used in hemp paper and hemp clothes, but uh, it's the fiber in the stems, as I recall, the, you know, the, uh, yeah, the stem of the, of the bush. Um, that 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 have this property and of course it's a lot more environmentally benign to grow hemp and process it than to dig up lithium or even recycle it from used up batteries so i think that's the technology that an eco socialist green new deal would uh certainly put the r d money in the budget uh toward scout trooper 164 what are your thoughts about the media line about aspects such as inflation while we endure food shortages. Um, I don't know if to me is lying so much about inflation as inflating inflation. I mean, it's pretty clear, I think, that a lot of inflation is due to uh, supply chain and basic supply issues coming out of the COVID lockdown. Uh, production was down. People have cash from some of the payments that were made. And they're buying more goods. They still can't spend on services like entertainment and travel and eating at restaurants and that kind of thing. So that's why you've got this high demand for physical goods, which has created the supply chain issue, which then more demand than supply means prices go up. I think that's the underlying cause of most of the inflation. Um, now, the food shortages, I guess you're referring to uh, you know, not everything being fully in stock in uh, grocery stores because, you know, certain products are in short supply. Um, and again, I think that's, you know, an issue of coming out of the COVID lockdown uh, when people have a lot of cash. So um, I think the inflation, that basic underlying cause is going to work itself out. And uh, it's not a long term problem uh, because the conditions we had before the COVID lockdown remain the same, you know, global economy with high competition. And uh, so uh, producers are competing on price uh, and that, you know, brings the price down. Scout Trooper 164, what are your thoughts on cars being developed to be recharged instead of needing gasoline? Do you think this will help the environment due to having fewer cars requiring gas or a new problem? Well, yeah, if the electricity they're recharging with is from renewable sources, uh, instead of burning gasoline, car per car, you're going to have less emissions, less impact on the climate. 
that's all to the good. Uh, what I'm concerned about is that, and this is in Biden's uh, infrastructure and Build Back Better bills, there's an emphasis on basically replacing a vehicle for vehicle combustion engines with uh, internal combustion engines with electric engines. And then you still have the problem of resources. Lithium was mentioned. Uh, cobalt is another. Those are uh, rare metals, require mining, big environmental impact. Um, so we would be better off uh, moving transportation more onto rails for both freight and passenger travel and having fewer individual vehicles. You know, electric uh, trucks to bring, you know, products the last mile to the store or the home. Um, and then uh, vehicles for, you know, more special uses, you know, rather than everybody having a personal vehicle. Public transit should be cheap, even free, and convenient, uh, more convenient and faster than getting in the car and getting in traffic jams. So that's, I think, the direction we need to go. So if we just, you know, build a massive electric car industry in place of the uh, massive internal combustion car industry, uh, we're going to still have a lot of environmental problems with respect to, you know, issues like lithium um, and cobalt and just, you know, the steels and plastics that they use to manufacture cars. Um, you know, we want to reduce our resource use as well as our power use uh, and emissions of carbon. So, um, the, you know, the basic point is replace the vehicles we need with electric vehicles, but uh, replace the need for so many vehicles with, you know, freight rails and, and passenger rails. Julia Barmer, are there talks about a Green Party running for president next election? And will it be you? <laughs> Man, I get asked that. I just got asked that on the last phone call I was on. I'm not even looking at that till we get through the midterms. I'm in New York. We have the hardest ballot access petition in the world that I can find. We need to get 45,000 signatures in 42 days in the spring, uh, April and May. And then we got to get nearly 200,000 votes to keep the ballot line. So that's what I'm looking at. And if we can get that ballot line back in New York, that's going to make whoever runs for president for the Green Party next time, it's going to make it a lot easier for them to focus on the many other states where we need to get ballot access. Because this petition is, you know, about $150,000 petition to pay the petitioners to get it done in the fast time frame and the high amounts. You, know, you say 45,000 signatures, you really need 90,000 to be safe. Um, so that's just a gargantuan job. So um, the only talks I've heard is, am I running? And my answer is, I'll look at that after the midterm elections. Mr. Anderson, Howie thoughts on super blocks, like what is going on in Catalonia, Spain. I'm not sure what you mean by super blocks. He may mean where they... Uh, consolidate a bunch of blocks and then uh, take the cars and the auto traffic out of the internal uh, streets. And yeah, that would free up a lot of land for, for park. You'd still need some paths so people can, who need, uh, who are disabled can, okay, they say that's what a super block is. Um, you're gonna still need some, some paths so 
uh, people that need to get around electric vehicles, you know, golf carts or whatever, because they're uh, handicapped um, and to deliver things to where people are uh, living and shopping. Um, but you can greatly reduce the amount of street traffic and parking space you need, which takes up so much of our urban land space. So that's uh, an efficient use of more efficient use of urban land. And that's the direction we got to move on for climate and environmental reasons. And uh, I haven't seen what's going on in Catalonia, so I'm going to have to look that up as well as NFTs. Scout Trooper 164, Howie, what do you think the Federal Reserve, which was established at least a century ago, or do I think the Federal Reserve, which was established at least a century ago, <coughs> is a major problem for income and money these days? <coughs> well, I think our central bank should be democratically accountable. Right now, it's <coughs> nominally independent. So the, the Fed chair is appointed by um, president. I think some of the other board members are appointed by the president, but they're also elected by private banks. <coughs> so it's more oriented to serving the big banking industry than, than the public. And of course, the Green Party has a plank <coughs> where we would bring the monetary authority of the Federal Reserve into the Treasury Department. And it would issue greenbacks rather than uh, Federal Reserve notes which would be debt-free money, <coughs> excuse me, that could then be spent into the economy in accordance with the federal budget. So we wouldn't have to borrow, uh, do so much borrowing to cover our expenses as a government. <coughs> so that's where I would like to see our uh, central bank go, should be part of the uh, administration, uh, democratically accountable, and able to produce this uh, debt-free money when we need to make expenses. Um, that's not to say we shouldn't be taxing to bring in income for the government, but uh, that's a wash for the economy because you're taking money out of the economy when you uh, do taxes. That's why this Build Back Better nonsense from Manchin about it being inflationary, not if uh, the expenses proposed in Build Back Better are covered by taxation. And then it's you're not adding to the money supply. You're spending money and then getting it back in taxes. Uh, to be technical, you may put money in before those taxes come in and expand the monetary supply uh, for a relatively short time. But in the long run, it's a wash. So Manchin is kind of full of it in that regard. Um, but these issues should be uh, not esoteric, but uh, part of what we talk about when we talk about public policy because the federal government, through the Treasury Department Monetary Authority, would be making those decisions, as opposed to a nominally independent Federal Reserve that is, uh, you know, where the big banks have a lot of influence in terms of what policies they adopt. And, uh, you know, if we'd have had that back when we were coming out of the real inflation in the late 70s, early 80s, and uh, instead of Volcker, you know, shock doctrine, very high interest rates, which crashed the economy. Uh, and then the Fed, which is supposed to balance the need for price stability and uh, jobs, emphasized price stability. And we've had uh, structurally high unemployment uh, throughout that period. That would have been a matter of public debate and the people could have debated uh, 
you know, what the monetary policy should have been. Uh, so I'm for democratizing our central bank. <clears throat> Jeffrey Denton, happy birthday, Howie. Thank you. You're a few days late, but I appreciate it. Thank you for the birthday wishes, everybody. So, oh boy, now everybody's wishing me happy birthday. That's not the purpose of this uh, live stream. So, I appreciate the birthday wishes. Veronica Fimbris, do you think the Green Party should endorse peace and freedom or Democrats over their own Green Party candidates that are running? I just want to know what you think or feel about this. Well, I think we should not uh, cross-endorse Democrats. It's, you know, a capitalist party. It's a corporate party. And the progressives in there, if they really are Democratic socialists, should get out because they're the tail on the Democratic donkey. They, they, they basically make it look better than it is. Um, and peace and freedom, which is independent of the corporate power structure, I think uh, we can cross-endorse them. But where we have Greens and peace and freedom running together, um, this is California. Uh, you know, we should ask ourselves, why is that? Why can't we? Uh, because there are plenty of offices to run for, and we're not filling the ballots up with either party. Why can't we cooperate on, you know, which party runs for which office, or at least hope to do that? And and that's where I would move toward if, uh, you know, I was in California. And when, you know, when we ran for president, Angela and I sought the Peace and Freedom nomination. Uh, didn't get it, but... Uh, you know, I think to build a broad independent left that can take on the two capitalist parties, uh, we need to work together with everybody we can work together with. The Memdroid. Is it true that a strong welfare state slows innovation? If not, why do so many conservatives and libertarians say so? Um, yeah, they think that people are lazy and, and the only way they'll get off their butts and do something is if uh, they're faced with the threat of starvation. Whereas the reality is the people that get welfare state benefits uh, like uh, public housing or Medicaid so they can, you know, uh, be healthy and get over illnesses, that gives people a foundation on which they can do innovation. If you're in a struggle just for survival, uh, how are you going to innovate? So, uh, you know, and then they're hypocritical, particularly the conservatives, not the libertarians so much, because uh, we have a corporate welfare state. And there are all kinds of subsidies for big business and tax breaks. And they say, we won't do it unless you give us these breaks and these subsidies. So they're the ones that, you know, uh, are saying that, Corporate welfare speeds innovation, which is not really true. You know, you look at big pharma. Uh, they tend to emphasize uh, development of drugs that are profitable. The drugs you need every day, like what? Um, Viagra. Um, rather than um, vaccines, which, you know, just need to be taken once or infrequently. Um, and, you know, we got a real problem in that we have uh, drug-resistant bact bacteria and uh, viruses that are developing. 
And all the research on that is being done by the public. And then we get situations like we did with the COVID vaccines where the government put a lot of money in to help these companies do the research and develop them on a fast timeline. Um, so uh, that actually sped up the innovation, you know, those public subsidies. So, you know, then to ask why do the conservatives and libertarians say so? Because they don't want to pay the taxes for it. That's all it is. They don't want to pay taxes for anything. So they're against any uh, expenditures except those that subsidize them. And then they're willing to tax us, the regular folks, for that. And we're now in a situation since the Trump tax cuts where you have to get the state, local, and federal taxes. And working people are paying the same rate overall in taxes as the super rich. So there is no progressivity left in the U.S. tax system. And uh, <clears throat> anyway, they don't want to pay taxes. I think that's the real story behind uh, their opposition to the welfare state. They just don't want to pay for it. And it's four o'clock, so uh, that's the end of the hour. I thank everybody for wishing me a happy birthday and for your questions. And uh, <clears throat> I hope people are feeling how uh, much I do, or as much as I do, this democracy crisis. I mean, we're in a situation where Republicans are getting control of the election machinery. There's reporting this week on how the Republicans in Georgia, who got control of the state election board, are now basically purging county election boards, not just of Democrats, but of black Democrats. I mean, this is old Jim Crow garbage. And that kind of thing is going on in you know various ways in about 30 states where the Republicans have control of the state legislatures. And as I said at the top, you know, it's kind of inexplicable why the Democrats aren't fighting, uh, you know, why the uh, voting rights and election protection legislation doesn't pass in the Congress, why they're letting Manchin be president and veto everything, um, and not having a big public fight about it. I mean, I think the people, most of the people want, you know, a democracy and fair elections. It's not a matter of convincing the majority. It's a matter of stopping this minority from seizing power uh, in undemocratic ways and then stifling democracy and ruling as a minority. That's where we're headed. And that, of course, if it's the Republicans, well, it will be the Republicans if they do that. And then the issues that we're concerned about, climate, equality, peace, uh, are going to have a hell of a time, you know, getting any uh, advantage. Sometimes with the Democrats, we can win reforms. I mean, you know, the Green New Deal came from the Green Party, and some of the Democrats talk about it. I guess that's progress. Not with the Republicans. And that's where we're at. It's a, a real threat to democracy. And, you know, if this legislation doesn't pass, the, the gerrymandering will be done. And the die will be cast for the 2022 elections to the House. The Republicans will take it back. And, you know, we're, we're, we're in a world of trouble. So, uh, you know, for Greens, that means we got to double down on the democracy fights we're doing for ourselves, ballot access, ranked choice voting, proportional representation. And we got to pick up the torch that the Democrats have dropped with respect to voting rights and election protection. And so, you know, we'll be in the 2022 elections and you're going to hear the Democrats and, you know, the progressive intelligentsia that's not too intelligent these days saying the Greens should drop out and 
rely on the Democrats. Well, they had the chance this year and they haven't done it. And they're letting the Republicans, like I said, they're coming to a knife fight with cupcakes and they're getting sliced up. So we got to step up and fight for our democracy. So that's that's my message for the week. Have a good week and I will see you next week.